You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 117, Retreat Across New Jersey. The last couple of weeks, I stepped away from the main fighting in New York and New Jersey to discuss other events. But before that, we left the Continental Army in late November 1776 in full retreat from New York toward Philadelphia. The Continentals had decided to make a stand at Fort Washington and ended up losing about 3,000 soldiers as prisoners of war. They also had to abandon Fort Lee across the river in New Jersey, and when we last left them a few weeks ago, they were headed south out of Newark, running toward Philadelphia. Now, the British invasion of New York in the summer and fall of 1776 had pushed the Americans out of the region. General Howe and Admiral Howe had used slow but steady measures to take the city and the area surrounding it. This was a very deliberate strategy and appeared to be working as planned. As he retreated, General Washington had divided his army, sending a little over half of the men further into upstate New York in case the British decided to move up the Hudson River and cut off New England from the rest of the colonies. He put his most trusted general, Charles Lee, in charge of those forces. After getting pushed out of New York after the Battle of White Plains, Washington kept personal command of the remaining forces as they moved through New Jersey. Washington had planned to combine these men with the more than 3,000 men at Fort Washington, but after the British captured the fort and took all those men prisoner, Washington was left with a command of 3,500 to 4,000 soldiers. Even worse, since it looked like the Americans were beat, many soldiers began abandoning Washington's army as soon as their enlistments were up or simply deserting before those enlistments ended. They were also unable to recruit any New Jersey militia to rally around the Continental Army, again because nobody wants to be with the failure. So through late November and early December, Washington's army retreated across New Jersey. Most would have thought the obvious general to command the forces against Washington would have been General Howe's second-in-command, Henry Clinton. General Clinton had already made multiple suggestions to Howe on the way he should run the campaign and clearly would have wanted the job. But Howe did not seem interested in any of Clinton's suggestions. Part of this may have been due to a desire not to let Clinton win any accolades for the final victory in crushing the Continental Army. It may also have been that Howe did not trust Clinton with an independent command. Clinton would be much more aggressive in chasing down the Continentals than Howe may have wanted. 
the two men had been going against each other all year, with Clinton barely able to contain his disdain of Howe's strategy. At one point during the Battle of White Plains, a frustrated Clinton told General Cornwallis that he would rather have an independent command of only three companies rather than continue to serve under Howe's command. Cornwallis passed along these comments to Howe, which only deepened the division between the commander and his second-in-command. Clinton had proposed landing a force in northern New Jersey and trying to move around the Continental Army's flank while another force pursued them directly. The two British forces would possibly surround the Continentals and force a surrender. But Howe wanted Clinton nowhere near New Jersey. He assigned Clinton to an independent command to take and hold a couple of port cities in Rhode Island that the British Navy would need for the winter. This was clearly an insult to Clinton. There was no serious opposition to this landing, which could have been done by a much lower level officer. I plan to discuss the invasion of Rhode Island in a few weeks, but everyone understood that this assignment was meant simply to push Clinton aside. Instead, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, General Howe had given command to General Cornwallis in New Jersey, and Cornwallis had taken Fort Lee without much of a fight and then begun to march through New Jersey in pursuit of the remnant of the Continental Army still under Washington's command. During the course of this retreat, Washington's situation became more and more desperate. His force continued to dwindle, primarily from desertion. No one wanted to be with the army when it finally surrendered. Washington sent repeated requests to General Lee in New York, encouraging him to move his army into New Jersey so that the combined American forces could confront and hopefully push back Cornwallis's army. As I said, with the loss of Fort Washington, General Washington had half the force he expected when he first divided his army. General Lee, however, was in no hurry to give up his independent command and help Washington. He came up with a series of excuses why he could not move his army. At the same time, he was telling everyone who would listen just how horrible Washington had been in command of the army in New York and that they really needed a new commander of the army. Guess who? If they wanted to win this thing. Washington was either ignorant of Lee's machinations or was simply ignoring them for the good of the army. Washington respected Lee as one of his best generals. The men had served together since the 1750s when they both fought at the Battle of Monongahela under General Braddock. Washington knew that officers of lower rank often criticized commanders. No commander liked it, especially when things were going badly but they knew it came with the job. However, a commander did not expect his own assistant to be part of such criticisms. One of General Lee's correspondents was Joseph Reed. Remember, Colonel Reed was the Philadelphia lawyer whom Washington had begged to serve as his aide-de-camp when he first arrived in Cambridge in 1775. Washington needed a good writer to assist him with correspondence and to assist with the clerical duties of command. Reed made a quick trip back to Philadelphia to tie up his affairs, 
then returned and remained by Washington's side as his aide and secretary ever since. During his whole life, Washington took very few men into his confidence and rarely discussed his personal thoughts, views, or feelings with much of anyone. But there were those rare few who entered Washington's inner sanctum, men he trusted like family to keep confidential anything he told them. Reed was one of the few who were in that tight circle. In short, Reed was the one man who guarded Washington thought he could trust. When Washington needed to send written orders, it was usually Reed who actually wrote the letter and made sure it got delivered. In one of Washington's orders to General Lee, Reed included a personal note which said in part, quote, I do not mean to flatter nor praise you at the expense of any other, but I confess I do think that is it entirely owing to you that this army and the liberties of America so far as they are dependent on it are not totally cut off. You have decision, a quality often wanting in minds otherwise valuable. And I ascribe to this an escape from York Island, Kingsbridge, and the Plains. I have no doubt that had you been here with the garrison at Mount Washington, would now have composed part of the army. Reed went on to say that Washington needed his experience and judgment to guide him. There is some debate what Reed hoped to accomplish by this. It could simply have been that he was appealing to Lee's considerable ego so that he might convince the general to do as Washington wanted and join the two armies in New Jersey. Many historians, though, interpret a more sinister motive Washington's career looked over after the loss of New York, and they think Reed was looking to ingratiate himself with the man who would most likely become the new commander of the Continental Army. General Lee responded to Reed with a letter that put his ego on full display. When the letter arrived in Washington's camp, however, Reed was away. Washington, desperate for news about Lee's expected arrival, opened the letter and read it. It began with Lee responding to Reed's earlier note to him. Quote, I have received your most obliging, flattering letter. Lament with you that fatal indecision of mind, which in war is a much greater disqualification than stupidity or even want of personal courage. Accident may put a decisive blunderer in the right, but eternal defeat and miscarriage must attend the man of the best parts, if cursed with indecision. So Washington knew that most of the country doubted his leadership ability following the loss of New York. He knew that Lee was clearly attacking Washington's indecision in evacuating New York City, White Plains, and Fort Washington in his comments. Washington also already knew that there was talk of replacing him with Lee as commander of the Continental Army but to see his most capable general corresponding with his most trusted aide to badmouth his abilities hit Washington hard. Washington forwarded on the letter to Reed with a note apologizing for opening his personal correspondence and saying that he thought it had been related to official business and without any further comment. Washington took no further action on the matter, but ended his confidential relationship with Reed. 
From that point on, their work together would become cold and formal. Whatever his original intentions, Colonel Reed obviously saw that what he had done was seen as an act of betrayal. He tried to repair the relationship. The two continued to work together, but the bond of trust and confidence was gone forever. If I had to identify a time when in Washington's life he was probably at his lowest, this would probably be it. His army, his officers, even his most trusted aide had lost confidence in him. Congress was openly critical, and his failures as a military commander were only mounting. Even worse, General Lee still refused to leave New York and come to Washington's assistance. Enlistment expirations and desertions now meant the army had fallen below 3,000. As I said, Cornwallis had been pressing Washington rather hard as the two armies maintained a running battle across New Jersey. On December 1st, Cornwallis caught up with Washington's army at the Raritan River and was ready to order the final death blow to the Continental Army. As Cornwallis prepared his orders for the following day's attack, a courier arrived with orders from General Howe. Those orders told Cornwallis to halt his advance immediately and await reinforcements. For nearly a week, Cornwallis's army sat obediently on the banks of the Raritan River as they watched the Continentals slip away once again. Finally, General Howe arrived with a single brigade of reinforcements. The army once again began its advance, but now they were moving at Howe's snail-like pace. Washington's battered and shrinking army reached Trenton and crossed the Delaware River into Pennsylvania. Washington then attempted to collect every boat along the river to prevent the enemy from crossing. This might have slowed up the British for a few days, but in truth, it seems that Howe had no interest in pursuing the army any further that year. It was already December, and well past time to move into winter quarters. Many Tories and British officers at the time, as well as later military historians, have criticized General Howe for slowing down the attack on the Continental Army fleeing across New Jersey. The Raritan River actually is more of a creek was easily fordable, knee-deep in many locations. Washington could not have made a serious stand there if Cornwallis had stormed across the river backed by his artillery. Washington's rear guard would have been no match for the British. Indeed, Washington, by this time, commanded far less than 3,000 men as desertions continued to decimate his ranks. So, why did General Howe order Cornwallis to stop? There are several reasonable explanations that do not indict Howe as incompetent or secretly supporting the American cause, as some have said. As a matter of military strategy, it is important not to let the armies get strung out too far. Howe would not want to give Washington a chance to ambush a large advance guard that had gotten too far ahead of the main force. Washington had done that on a smaller scale at White Plains. Even a minor victory could provide hope that would slow down the disintegration of the Continental Army. And that appears to be Howe's ultimate goal. Everyone decides that the British Army is invincible and just gives up, 
goes home, accepts a pardon, and the war is over. Even before the Continental Army had left New Jersey, the Howe brothers had issued another proclamation of conciliation on November 30. The proclamation called on the Continental Army to disperse, for the Continental Congress to disband, and offered amnesty to all rebels who signed an oath of allegiance to the king within 60 days. From the beginning, the House had made clear to the ministry back in London that they were much more interested in a political settlement in America than crushing the colonists in military defeat. Howe could have taken Clinton's advice and sailed the British Navy up the Delaware River before pushing Washington's army across New Jersey. This could have caught Washington in between the British Army and Navy and forced it to surrender. But that did not seem to be Howe's goal. He wanted the Continental Army to run away and look completely powerless in the face of British military might. He did not want to appear himself as a ruthless military tyrant. He wanted to be a liberator and peacemaker. With the British victories in New York, it was clear that the Americans could not stand up to the British army. The time to convince people to come back and obey the king and parliament was when it looked like there was no better alternative. Given the state of affairs, many took this offer seriously it did not appear that the Continental Army would survive the winter. If Britain really was about to crush this rebellion, better to protect one's personal property and even one's life by taking advantage of the amnesty offer. Thousands of people across New York and New Jersey flocked to British outposts to take the oath. Allegedly among those taking the oath was Richard Stockton from New Jersey, who had signed the Declaration of Independence only a few months before. Some historians, however, argued that he simply signed a parole agreement after being captured, agreeing to play no further role in the rebellion. I'm going to discuss Stockton's situation in more detail next week, but either way, it was not exactly a vote of confidence for an American victory. Other patriot leaders also seemed to doubt for the future. John Dickinson moved out of Philadelphia and advised his family members to stop accepting Continental dollars. The remnant of Washington's army, if it still could be called an army, had been through hell. Over the course of the retreat, they had been forced to give up most of their tents and other supplies. Many men were without shoes and had been wearing the same clothes for months without washing. Many of them were rags simply falling off their bodies. The men were dirty, unshaven, and in most cases looked like they could barely walk, let alone fight. To give you some idea, Charles Wilson Peale, the famous artist, commanded a company of Philadelphia militia that came out to assist the Continentals once they entered Pennsylvania. He described seeing, quote, the most hellish scene I have ever beheld, end quote. As lines of ragged men plodded past him, Peel noted, quote, A man staggered out of line and came toward me. He had lost all his clothes. He was in an old dirty blanket jacket, his beard long, his face full of scars, which so disfigured him that he was not known to me in first sight, end quote. It was only after the soldier spoke to him that he realized he was speaking to his own brother, James. 
those who had not yet abandoned the army mostly looked like desperate beggars in rags, not an army. The Continental Congress in Philadelphia was not exactly a profile encouraged during this time. Fearing the British might still try to capture Philadelphia, and without any faith in Washington to defend them, Congress chose to run away. On December 12th, Congress adjourned and voted to move to Baltimore unless the threat passed. One delegate, Robert Morris, opted to stay in Philadelphia, where he lived and had his business. Morris essentially acted as a one-man Department of War and Department of Treasury, providing General Washington with what little assistance he could as the rest of the Congress fled to the South. Congress reconvened in Baltimore on December 20, 1776, and would remain there for a little over two months. In 1776, Baltimore was not the shining model city that it is today. Members complained about the garbage everywhere and the terrible smell. There was no decent public buildings in which to meet. Congress had to rent a large home downtown belonging to Henry Fite, where they would convene until February. Shortly after reconvening, Congress passed a resolution giving Washington full authority to do whatever he wanted regarding the operation of the war. In other words, they handed him near-dictatorial powers. Congress did not plan to be available for consultation or much of anything else, as it was on the run. I'll discuss the Continental Congress's time in Baltimore in a future episode. At least Congress did not try to change commanders at this time. Whatever their concerns about Washington's leadership, they knew enough not to try to change commanders in the middle of this retreat. Congress's decision also meant that Washington was on his own. His army continued to shrink, and the Continental armies to the north, led by Generals Lee and Gates, seem uninterested in coming to his assistance. Congress showed no faith that he could protect Philadelphia, and only Howe's reluctance to cross the Delaware River in December seemed to save the Continental Army from complete annihilation. Next week, I want to focus on two important prisoners captured during this retreat. Congressman Richard Stockton, and General Charles Lee. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. I want to thank the continued support of Liberty & Co., a member of the Robert Morris Circle on Patreon. 
Tyler France, who runs Liberty & Co., sells a wide range of revolution and constitution-related items. Among them are a number of magnets and stickers with logos from the revolution. These include a 1775 militia magnet, a proclaimed liberty magnet that has the Liberty Bell, or one that has the law offices of John Adams. There are also t-shirts, candles, mugs, and other items available. With Christmas approaching, maybe this is a time to hint to your loved ones that you would like something that shows your interest in the revolution this year. Tyler also donates a portion of profits to the Museum of the American Revolution, and on top of that, you can get a 20% discount if you enter the promo code AMREV, that's A-M-R-E-V, at checkout. To get to the site, go to libertyand.co. There's also a link to it on my website, amrevpodcast.com. So today's episode, we see General Washington at his lowest. He appears to be the leader of a lost cause. His own generals are ignoring his orders and refusing to assist him. His personal aid is corresponding with others and appears to be strongly implying that they would be better leaders of the army. On the other side, British General Howe seems focused on reining in his army from further destruction. He does not want to massacre in some grand last stand. He's convinced that the rebellion will fall apart with his show of force. And this view really doesn't seem to be too far off base. Colonists in occupied areas of New York and New Jersey are taking the oaths of allegiance by the thousands. Continental soldiers are deserting, while those who remain are counting down the days until their enlistments expire by the end of the year. At this point, General Howe seems content to run out the clock. The Continental soldiers will go home at the end of the year, and everyone will accept pardons. This difficult few weeks is the subject of this week's book recommendation, The Long Retreat, The Calamitous American Defense of New Jersey, 1776, by Arthur Lefkowitz. The book itself is rather short, only 150 pages, not counting pretty slim notes and index sections. But the entire focus of the book is the events from the retreats from Fort Washington and Lee through the preparations for Washington's famous crossing on Christmas Day. Lefkowitz, the author, published this book in 1998. Although he had a day job, he is clearly a Revolutionary War enthusiast who has published at least six books on the subject. I also, I think, recommended one of his other books on the turtle, The American Submarine, used in New York Harbor. As I said, the book is relatively short, but it is an easy read and has some good footnotes with source material. If you want a book that focuses on the 1776 retreat across New Jersey, not just as an introduction to Washington's Crossing, but as a focus of the entire book, then this is your book. My online recommendation this week is an ebook available on archive.org. It's called The Correspondence of Charles, First Marquis Cornwallis, Volume 1, edited by Charles Ross. As you might guess from the title, it is the correspondence of Lord Cornwallis, the British general who is leading this charge across New Jersey. The book was first published in 1859 and, as I said, covers the correspondence of Cornwallis over his entire life. I recommend Volume 1 because that is relevant to his years during the war. 
Of course, the later part of his life is dominated by his rule of India. That's interesting, but not really relevant to our topic here. This is a great primary source for understanding communications among the British leadership of the war. If interested, you can find the book on archive.org or simply use the link on my website, amrevpodcast.com. Of course, you can pay for a paper copy of the book, but it is available for free online. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.